So Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Let us hear the word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. This is God's word. And may he bless the reading and the preaching of his word. So Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, Jesus appoints his preachers. So let's begin with verse 7. What do we read there one more time? Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. Isn't that interesting? Jesus withdrew. Who was Jesus withdrawing from? And why was he withdrawing from them? What does it mean to withdraw? It kind of means to hide, doesn't it? Or sort of distance yourself from someone. So why was Jesus withdrawing and who was he withdrawing from? Well, I think the answer is in verse 6. So if we go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it's interesting what we read there. Then the Pharisees went out... And began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So who were Herodians? Well, they were kind of like a Jewish sect and they were quite political. They were Jewish, Greek-speaking people. 
and they were sort of friends with Herod the Great, which isn't a great start, is it? Herod the Great, who ordered the massacre of babies. You don't want to be friends with someone like that, do you? It's not your first pick. Who am I going to have as a friend? Oh, Herod the Great, someone who commits infanticide, isn't it? Very evil man. And they also thought that maybe Herod the Great was the Messiah, was the Christ. So it's a bit weird, really, that Pharisees are sort of coming together with them. It goes to show how corrupt and hypocritical the Pharisees were. I'll tell you what, shall we become friends with the Herodians, the people who like the person who commits infanticide? Shall we become friends with the Herodians who think that Herod is the Messiah, is the Christ? They were corrupt and hypocritical to the core, weren't they? The Pharisees. And also the Herodians, that they were now becoming friends with the Pharisees. So it comes back to the question, who was Jesus withdrawing from? Well, Jesus was sort of withdrawing from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Why was he withdrawing from them? Well, quite simply, because they wanted to kill them. Would you do the same? If you knew someone was out to kill you, would you sort of still hang around? No, you'd, you'd, make, you'd leg it, wouldn't you? But then the question is, was Jesus afraid to die then? Was Jesus afraid of death? Of course Jesus wasn't afraid of death. He came to bring an end to death, didn't he? That is why Jesus came. Jesus was born to die. That was his mission. Way back in eternity, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. Way back in eternity, the Godhead had made this agreement that God the Son would one day become a human being and suffer and bleed and die for my sins and your sins. That was the plan. And Jesus says that later on in Mark, doesn't he? Mark chapter 10 Verse 45, for even the son of man, that's the title Jesus gave to himself, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus isn't afraid of death. So why is Jesus withdrawing himself away from the murderous Pharisees and Herodians? Well, it wasn't the right time for Jesus to die. Jesus knew there was a lot more work for him to do before he was supposed to die for our sins. Because we're only in chapter 3, aren't we? Could you imagine if Jesus died in chapter 3 of Mark? We've got another 11 chapters to go, haven't we, before the death of Jesus. Jesus hasn't been transfigured yet. He hasn't done the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding the colt, does he? Jesus hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper yet. The Last Supper hasn't happened. And Jesus was to die at Passover, wasn't he? So the time wasn't right for him to die. That's why he sort of slipped away from the Pharisees and the Herodians. And if we move on then to verses 7 and 8, what do we read there? Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, or the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, I don't know about you, but I think verses 7 and 8 are just so exciting. Sometimes you can read them and just think, oh, they're just words. But they are thrilling. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 are really exciting verses. They are amazing. I love these verses. Because Jesus is being followed by, if we look at it carefully again, who is Jesus being followed by? A large crowd from Galilee. And many people come to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre, and Sidon. So it probably looked a bit like this. I know the map is a bit blurry, but can you see it? So there's the Sea of Galilee, the lake. So that's where Jesus is now. And look where people are coming from. He's being surrounded, isn't he? Loads of people are coming to Jesus. People are coming to Jesus from the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west. And it's not just people from Israel coming to him. I love where it says, and the regions across the Jordan. So can you see the Jordan River? So the Jordan River ran from the Sea of Galilee all the way down there down to the Dead Sea. So that was kind of like the border. So this is sort of Israel and uh, Judea. And then the regions across the Jordan is basically the rest of the world in the east. So it's kind of modern-day Syria, modern-day Iraq, Saudi Arabia. So this is probably a big crowd, aren't they? All coming to Jesus. But it's quite interesting that it says as well, Tyre and Sidon. So when you hear the words Tyre and Sidon, we're not, we're not far from pantomime season, are we? So sort of when you hear the words Tyre and Sidon, there'd have been a bit of music, like bum, 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 or something like that, isn't it? <gasps> Tyre and Sidon, they were sort of considered enemy territory, Tyre and Sidon. They were considered sort of unpleasant people, an unpleasant place, Tyre and Sidon. So what, they are coming to Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One? We, we look a bit about uh, Tyre and Sidon in chapter 7 of Mark and see the significance of Tyre and Sidon. But Tyre and Sidon were considered places of God's judgment, and we see that in the Old Testament. So it was a shock to hear about these people coming to Jesus. What, Tyre and Sidon are coming to Jesus? It would be a bit like, could you imagine, you go home after church and you turn on the news and you hear thousands of people who are connected with ISIS have become Christians today. Thousands of people in Afghanistan today became Christians. Thousands of people in Pakistan, thousands of people in Saudi Arabia, thousands of people in North Korea became Christians today. And you might be thinking, what? That's 
sort of enemy territory. You know, Islamic terrorists and North Korean communists have become Christians today. They're kind of like, humanly speaking, they're kind of like the last people you'd expect to become Christians, isn't it? But that's what Jesus came to do, wasn't it? He came to save the most unexpected people, the most unpleasant people, the people who we maybe consider enemies. That's what we read, isn't it, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. This is what Jesus said. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't know about you, but isn't that so exciting? Jesus could become attractive and totally irresistible to the most unpleasant people that you know today. Jesus could become attractive and totally irresistible to our so-called enemies today. Praise God. The story continues. What do we read then in Mark chapter 3, verses 9 and 10? What do we read there? Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. So now Jesus has to withdraw even further because he's about to get crushed to death, isn't he? So the Herodians and the Pharisees were trying to murder him and now the crowds are about to crush him to death. But here's a question to think about. Do all these people who are crowding around Jesus, do they know who Jesus is and why he came? What do you think? This massive crowd. There must have been thousands, don't you think? People come from the north, south, east and west. People from across the Jordan. Thousands of people pressing in on Jesus. Do you think all of them knew who Jesus really was and why he came? I think probably not. They probably just wanted to be healed physically. Because none of them are saying, Jesus, we want to hear the words of eternal life from you. They're all just trying to touch him to be healed, aren't they? But Jesus didn't come to just physically heal people, did he? Why did Jesus come? Yeah, he certainly did heal people. But Jesus came to preach, didn't he? He came to preach the good news. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, didn't he? Uh, Jesus' healings were just signposts pointing to who he was. When Jesus rose the dead, when he calmed the storm, when he fed the 5,000, when he cast out the demons, when he healed the sick, they were clear signs pointing to who he was. This is God. If Jesus has got this authority, then he also has authority to forgive sins. He has authority clearly pointing that he is God. 
So the miracles, the signs and the wonders, they were just signposts. But people were getting obsessed with the signpost. Now many of you know it's um, Nathan's birthday today. He's six years old. And we asked him what he wanted to do for his birthday. And he wanted to go into London. So we haven't been to London yet until yesterday as a four, as a family of four, uh, since we moved to Binfield. So Nathan just wanted to see all these sort of scenes that he's seen in the film Paddington. So he wanted to see all these iconic uh, London landmarks. And we spent a lot of time just looking at the map, trying to find our way around. So we were looking at the map, saying, where is Parliament Square? Where is Hamleys? Where is Trafalgar Square? Where is Big Ben and all? So we were looking on the map for all these places and I was showing it and look, it's there. We need to walk down this street and we'll see it. Could you imagine when we arrived at Big Ben, the Nathan was sort of just looking at the map because he got excited when I showed him on the map. That's where we're going. That's where we'll see Big Ben. But Big Ben is covered in scaffolding. You couldn't even tell that it was, it was a bit disappointing actually. <laughs> So he said, what? That's Big Ben. He said, well, if you come around the other side, you can see a clock or something. Um, could you imagine if Nathan was just getting so excited by the map? He said, look at this map. It says that Big Ben is there. Look at this map. It says that those big lions are there in Trafalgar Square. Look at this map. It says Hamley's there. And he was just standing outside Hamley's. Or he wasn't looking at those big lions in Trafalgar Square. Or he wasn't looking at Big Ben or the London Eye and the Houses of Parliament. He's just obsessed with the signpost. So we shouldn't get obsessed by the signpost. The signpost is pointing to Jesus and who Jesus is. That's what we should get really excited about. And the story goes on. Verses 11 and 12. What do we read there? Mark 3 verses 11 and 12. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before Jesus and cried out, You are the Son of God. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So if the people didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God... Who did know? Because if the people really knew that Jesus was the Son of God, what would they have done? Would they have been obsessed about being healed? If the people knew that Jesus was the Son of God, what would they have done? They'd have probably bowed down and worshipped him, wouldn't they? Like the, the wise men. They'd have bowed down and worshipped him, like the angels, isn't it? No, the people didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God. But who did know that Jesus was the Son of God? The unclean spirits. They knew who Jesus was. But that's interesting. Jesus doesn't let the unclean spirits preach. He says, I'm not going to let you tell the world who I am. I'm not going to let you preach. And I think that's quite interesting. That is the devil's oldest trick, isn't it? He takes a little bit of truth to deceive the world, doesn't he? And when you do think of the false religions, when you do think of the cults of the world, they've all got a little bit of truth, haven't they? 
I'm going to say something maybe a bit shocking now, but there's a lot of things that Roman Catholics believe that we'd agree with, aren't there? we probably sort of tick the same boxes as Roman Catholics and even Jehovah's Witnesses. There's probably quite a lot of things that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that we also believe. But when it comes to the most important thing, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's where we differ big style, isn't it? And when we think about the Trinity, especially with Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is God. So the devil always does that. That's his trick. He takes a little bit of truth to try and deceive the whole world. And Jesus is saying, I'm not letting you, the unclean spirits, to preach that a little bit of truth so you can lead the whole world astray. No, Jesus is about to point someone else to do the job of preaching. And we see that in verse 13. Jesus is about to point those he wants to do that job. What do we read then in Mark chapter 3, verse 13? Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. It's quite interesting, the 12 apostles didn't call Jesus to come to them, did they? The 12 apostles didn't say, oh Jesus, come over here, we want to be your apostles, come to us. It didn't work like that, did it? And Jesus didn't ask for volunteers, he didn't say, hey guys, uh, I need 12 volunteers, I'm looking for 12 apostles. Yeah, I can see a few hands up. Oh, yeah, I got ten. I need two more. Come on, I need two more to make up a twelve. It didn't quite work like that, did it? Jesus wasn't looking for volunteers. What happened? No, Jesus called those he wanted. And they came to him. So what's the lesson for us there? None of us are apostles, are we? We're not one of the twelve apostles. I think there is a lesson there for us. We didn't choose Jesus. If you're saved this morning, I know this is unpopular with some people, but we didn't choose Jesus. He called us. And we come to him in faith and repentance. It's Jesus who calls. And we come to him then in faith, believing that Jesus is God believing that he died for us, believing that he rose again from the dead for us, and we come to him in repentance, turning away from sin and turning to him. And there's no volunteers in the Christian life. There's no volunteers in the Christian life. Jesus calls people, he empowers them, and he equips them. Did I volunteer to become the minister of Binfield Free Church? Did I? I didn't volunteer, did I? I didn't, I didn't like look through the news. Oh, look, they're looking for a minister in Binfield. If, if you want to know the story, it's quite miraculous, isn't it? It is quite a weird story how I ended up here. Isn't it? How on earth did that happen? 
Is it odd or is it God, doesn't it? God called me. Would I have chosen to become a minister in England, in Royal Berkshire? (laughs) Not in a million years. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you, I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) Can you tell I'm happy to be here? I am very happy to be here, honestly. But Jesus had to call me. I wouldn't have chosen to come here, no offence. But Jesus called me and I had to go. So I think the lesson as well is if God is calling you to do something, my friends, don't resist him. Don't resist him. I dread to think the trouble I'd be in if I didn't come here. It's a fearful thing to think, oh, England, Royal Berkshire, no thanks. God would have got me here, but it would have been very painful. And God would have been angry. Do you remember when God called Moses? What does he say? Oh, send someone else. And then God gets angry. You don't want to fall into the hands of an angry God, do you? And we all know the story of Jonah, don't we? Go to Nineveh, that way. Yeah. I own this city. But God got him there, didn't he? Got him there. He had to be swallowed by a fish, didn't he? He had to go through quite a traumatic experience, that storm at the sea, being swallowed by a fish, being at the bottom of the sea. He was basically dead, wasn't he? An important message for us. If God is calling us to do something, don't resist him. And then what do we read in verse 14 of Mark chapter 3? He, that's Jesus, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. I think that's amazing. What was the first thing that Jesus appointed the apostles to do? What's the first thing that Jesus appoints the apostles to do? Anyone want to say? Any of the young people? What's the first thing Jesus appoints the apostles to do? He appointed the twelve that they might be with him. I love that. That's such a tiny little detail that I noticed this week. First and foremost, Jesus appointed the apostles to be with him. Before preaching, before driving out demons, before any position of authority, before any works of service... Jesus wants us to be with him. And my friends, we can't serve properly. We can't be in a position of authority or leadership. We can't serve properly unless we've been with Jesus. Can't teach a Sunday school class. You can't stand up here and preach. We can't tell our friends about Jesus adequately unless we've been with Jesus so important that we spend every day with Jesus, isn't it? So we can be his servants. So first and foremost, Jesus appointed the twelve to be with him. Have you been with Jesus today? Are you going to be with Jesus tomorrow? 
before you go out into the battlefield. And what's the second thing Jesus appointed the apostles to do? To preach. To preach. Now God hasn't called all of us to preach to a congregation. To do something similar to what I'm doing this morning. God hasn't called everyone. It'd be a bit of a boring church, wouldn't it? If all of us could stand up the front and preach to a congregation. God hasn't given everyone the same gift, does he? But God has called us all to communicate the gospel with others, hasn't he? Every single one of us in this room, if we know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we should be communicating the gospel with our unbelieving friends, family and neighbours. And this is a great opportunity, isn't it? Even if you're the shyest person in the world, you can give someone a verse of scripture. A wonderful verse of scripture, isn't it? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. A saviour has been born to you. I said, oh, can I just give you a card? It tells you that Jesus was born for you. Come and find out more. It's not hard, is it? All of us can probably do that, can't we? We should all try and communicate the gospel to a lost and dying world. And then thirdly, what is the third thing Jesus appoints the apostles to do? Can you see that in verse 14 and verse 15? He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Verse 15. And to have authority to drive out demons. And I think, what on earth is that about? Why did Jesus appoint the 12 apostles to drive out demons? Why on earth did Jesus give the 12 apostles authority to drive out demons? What's going on there? Well, I think Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, tells us the answer. Why Jesus gave authority to the apostles to drive out demons. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, first announced by Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Who are those who heard Jesus? The apostles, isn't it? Those who were with him. Mark's gospel is basically Peter's words. The apostle Peter's words is Mark's gospel, written down by his secretary, John Mark. So these are the words of the apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, by the apostles. 
God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his wills. So the apostles were given authority to perform signs, wonders, and miracles as proof that their preaching was authentic. It's like, well, Apostle Peter, Apostle John, Apostle Paul, how do we know that you are speaking and writing the word of God? Well, this is the proof, isn't it? Because God has given us authority to perform signs, wonders, miracles. Because you can see us driving out demons in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is proof that what we're speaking and what we're writing is the word of God. Now, we don't see the signs, wonders and miracles that Jesus and the apostles performed today, do we? Yeah, we do see signs, wonders and miracles, but nothing on the scale of when Jesus and the apostles were here on earth. Is that fair to say? Anyone seen a resurrection recently? (laughs) No, we don't. We do see healing, don't we? We pray for healing, but we don't see signs, wonders and miracles on the scale as was done 2,000 years ago in Israel, in that region, isn't it, when Jesus and the apostles were here on earth. And we aren't Jesus or the apostles, are we? The Bible is complete. There's no more Bible to be written. If the Bible was still being written, then maybe whoever was still sort of writing the Bible would have this sort of this authority, wouldn't they? They would be performing these incredible signs, wonders, and miracles as proof that their preaching and teaching was authentic. But the Bible tells us that it is complete. And uh, demonic activity um, was far more prevalent when Jesus and the apostles were here on earth. When Jesus and the apostles were here on earth, Hell was literally shaking, wasn't it? The demonic realm was sort of disturbed when Jesus was here on earth. So what's verse 15 got to do with us? If we don't see demonic activity in such an intense way as it was when Jesus and the apostles were here on earth, there's certainly still demonic activity on this earth, isn't there? just have to read the news, don't you? But it's not as intense as when Jesus and the apostles were here on earth. So what's verse 15 got to do with us? Well, the devil is still active today. He still lies to us. He tells us that we can find pleasure and comfort and happiness in all the wrong places. In places that will hurt us and hurt others. But we can take our stand against the devil. How? Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13 tells us. This is what the church can do today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
against his lies, against his temptations. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. We have to take our stand against the devil's schemes when we put on the armor of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we put on the gospel, isn't it? Faith and righteousness and salvation and the truth. And then to close, what about verses 16 to 19? These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Then he gave, uh, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, most of these names are, are common names, aren't they? We all know someone called Simon, don't we? We all know someone called John, or Peter, or Matthew, or Philip, or Andrew, or Thomas, don't we? We all know someone with those names. Isn't that, I find that just amazing that names from 2,000 years ago are still common today. Who do, who do we give the name Caesar to, or Felix? It's to the cat and the dog, isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? These are the names we give our children, isn't it? And then Caesar will give that to the dog, isn't it? That's who deserves that name. I love that fact. But then, we probably, probably don't know anyone called Judas, do we? You're not going to name your son Judas, are you? You're not going to give them a very good start in life. Oh, Judas, yeah, he looks like a Judas to me. No, don't call your child Judas. It's a strange one, isn't it? Verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You wouldn't even call your dog Judas, would you? But why Judas? Why did Jesus appoint a wicked man as one of his apostles? And it's even prophesied in the Psalms that one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest friends, would betray him. Why did Jesus appoint a wicked man as one of his apostles? Well, the answer is we don't really know, do we? We don't really know. But I think there's a lesson there for us. Judas Iscariot is a lesson for us. Judas, do you think Judas performed signs, wonders and miracles? He'd have stood out if he didn't, wouldn't he? He said, what's what's up with him? You know, we're all casting out demons. We're all healing the sick. He's not. Do you think Judas maybe preached and people were converted? I think so. Otherwise, he would have stood out, wouldn't he? You know, Peter was preaching, John was preaching, James was preaching, and people were coming to Jesus. There's something wrong with Judas. He's doing what we're doing, and nothing's happening. And it's quite interesting. None of the other 11 knew that Judas was a fraud, did they? They couldn't spot it. Obviously, Jesus could. Because he's God, he knows everyone's hearts, doesn't he? 
So I think the lesson there for us, don't get surprised when gifted preachers turn out to be frauds. We've all got our favourite preachers, haven't we? We've all got our favourite authors, Christian authors. We shouldn't put our trust and our hope in them, should we? Because they could turn out to be a fraud, couldn't they? And I've seen it happen too many times. People who I thought were godly, people who I thought they obviously love Jesus. They obviously know Jesus. Look how gifted they are, being blessed by their preaching. And then they turn out to be a fraud. They turn out to be a wicked man. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? We shouldn't get too depressed when that happens. Well, my hope is in Jesus, not in other human beings. We shouldn't put human beings up on pedestals, should we? I remember hearing about someone who was really disappointed by something their pastor did. I said, oh, I put you up on a pedestal and you've really disappointed me. And the minister said, I should never have been on that pedestal. It's only Jesus who belongs up there. I'm just a man, just a sinner. Judas Iscariot, a lesson for us. But I think it'd be good to close with verses 13 to 15, one more time, briefly. Mark 3, verses 13 to 15, reminding us of what's involved in following Jesus. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So let us close with this question. What is involved in following Jesus? And this is the test. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? Are we faithful followers of Jesus this morning? What is involved in following Jesus? Well, firstly, we answer to his call and we come to him. What's involved in following Jesus? Answering his call and coming to him in faith and repentance. Have you answered to the call of Jesus? Calling you to come to him. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you repented? Have you come to Jesus in faith and repentance? Secondly, being with him. Do you spend time with Jesus every day? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being with him. And thirdly, telling others about him. Communicating the gospel to others. And then fourthly, taking our stand against the devil's schemes. That's what a true follower of Jesus is. We can take our stand against the devil's schemes. We can resist the devil in the mighty name of Jesus. We do pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from that evil one.